Hello and welcome to the official podcast of Palate Exposure, featuring Alona Thompson, a podcast for those seeking the ultimate in wine, food, and travel. Each week, she interviews winemakers, chefs, celebrities, and a variety of guests that shape the way we enjoy life. You take a Veuve Clicquot, and it's kind of tasty, and it has a little interesting yeast aroma, but when you get to the finish, it kind of goes <laughs> because of the sugar and the acid. Are we including Clomus nail in it, the ambonane, and all that? I'm not saying that there are no... <laughs> I'm just checking, because you're just crashing my world right here. Well, I get <laughs> it. And, 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 you know, I have a chief master sergeant friend that scolded me about my opinion about champagne, because he said, he said that we need champagne. He, said, he was from Brooklyn. He said, he said, Smith, you're an idiot. <laughs> think champagne is wine. You're telling me that I could have twice as much wine with half the money if I just go buy some Chardonnay or something. But champagne is not wine. Champagne is is the embodiment of celebration. And and God damn it, every every week you gotta celebrate your victories. And it's it's a painful process. And champagne helps, especially if it's expensive and tastes terrible. <laughs> That's so funny. So, and I think he's right, you know, so that is the function of champagne. Yeah. Uh, all right, and what the heck? But I think it's very interesting that after World War II, that the French, I mean, they started off by taking this horrible wine and turning it into popular and prestigious wine in France, mm -hmm. 1700. But then, 1950 rolls around and all of a sudden blue nun and you know anybody could make sweet wine right and so they had to go to the brute and, and and so this wine that they had ridiculed before became 99 percent of what champagne is now yes uh, and you know i mean i do appreciate a great champagne every once in a while um, and it's always fun to drink something that costs three hundred dollars, uh, but by and large, I think California is a much better place to make Method Champenois sparkling wines, and that's what I set out to prove. Because our wines are not thin and bland and sour; they're full of fruit, and so that's what I was trying to do with this uh, Santa Cruz Mountain uh, sparkling Grenache, Brut Zero. We had taken it through malolactic, so the acid is pretty low, and it just has this long, 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 long finish with all these strawberries and and um, yeasty characters and this kind of honeydew melon thing that seems to be the vineyard characteristic there. Uh, and and I think you know we can really out out champagne champagne uh, with wines that actually have character. You know, I have a very strong sense that there's a lot of closeted consumers right now that giving a standing ovation for those words because, of course, a lot of the industry gravitates towards austerity, which typically comes from Europe. You know, our little California sunshine just imbues the fruit, like it or not, and it's a matter of either hiding it or showcasing it. And well, you, I respect European styles. Yeah. The thing, I mean, the winesmith. What we're trying to do is to prove that California is a better place to make European wine than Europe is. 
Um, but I grew up, you know, in a liquor store, uh, learning all about Bordeaux and Burgundy and, and Italian wines and German wines. And, and that's still my aesthetic. So, for example, I think a wine needs to have integrity uh, and that it needs to be uh, age-worthy and it needs to be able to be open for several days and, and still not fall apart. I don't want to make clown wines. I don't want to make wines that are there to knock your socks off with, with fruit and oak and alcohol and then just fall apart on you. Uh, I think about it, winemaking is like baseball. Uh, Sometimes, most of the wines in California now, we're just hitting pop flies. So you get a lot of altitude and it comes down in the infield. Uh, with some of my wines, like like Crucible and the, the Humboldt Meritage that you tasted, we're really swinging for the fences. We're trying to make wines that really honestly don't taste very good when they're young. Uh, but they're still gaining altitude when they leave the infield and they go over the fence and they're, you know, there are wines that are designed to outlive you. Uh, okay. And so then, you know, in between you got the wine drives, you know, wines that are, uh, they, they, they don't go over the fence. My Cabernet Franc, certainly my Norton is like mm -hmm. that. Saint Laurent is like that. But there's still these wines down in the 12% alcohol range uh, that do have good structural integrity and yet and are drinkable today, but will also go the distance. I'm kind of fascinated by the age-worthiness aspect of it. Um, statistically, wine gets consumed very quickly. We're talking, you know, it ages in the backseat of the car. Okay. Very when small. You're in my world. <laughs> Statistics don't matter. Okay, so you want because time I just need, I just need about four thousand people that are crazy about what I'm doing, and the rest of the wine drinking population is not important to me. I think that's I'm actually not important to them. Reality, honestly, like your fan base is all you care about, and you treat them like gold, and you speak the same language. And I want to have, I mean, I built R.H. Phillips in the 80s, and that went up to, we started off at 3,000 cases, and seven years later, we were a third of a million cases. So I've made a whole lot of wine in that game, and I'm not, you know, I think we put 10 million really, really good bottles on people's tables in the seven years I was there, and that was fun. Mm -hmm. But I'll tell you something, when... When we were 3,000 cases, we didn't lose money. We made $50,000. And then the next year, we went from 3,000 to 42,000 cases. And we didn't lose money. We made $50,000. And then the third year, we were 145,000 cases. And we made $50,000. And every single year, we made $50,000. So when I got... Uh, into Winesmith, I said, I wonder how small I can get and still make $50,000. Answer is about a thousand cases. How is it possible that you made the same profit even though your production grew? Because there's no economies of scale. Mm. Uh, Interesting. Part of the reason is the A accounts, the ones that I have personal connection with, are really where all the profit is. Mm. 
And, uh, and then you have the B accounts where you stay even, and you have the C accounts like the airlines where you lose money for the exposure. Mm -hmm. We had a guy one time, John Shakir came to me and he said, I'm not making any, I don't, I don't have any sales in Southern California. I'm going to hire this guy named Bruce Diller. And he was great. And he went out there and he got us 40,000 cases happening in LA, but we had to lower our prices so that we were making about $3 a case. And uh, what do you think we were paying Bruce to do it? About $120,000 a year. So we ended mm -hmm. up making exactly no money. Wow. That's, that's, that's the way the game is. And so these little tiny wineries, oh, here's another example. Let's say I make uh, a Cabernet and I'm gonna sell it through the three-tier system, through my New York distributor. Mm -hmm. He's going to sell it to the retailer. The retailer puts it on the shelf for cabin for, for 20 bucks. Mm -hmm. He's going to buy it for 13 and mark it up 50%. Mm -hmm. Then the distributor is going to buy it for me for seven and mark it up to 13. That's the way the three tier system works. Mm -hmm. Now I'm going to make it, I have to make it for about four because I'm then going to have to put about 250 on to marketing that wine because no one in the three-tier system is going to do anything to support the brand. They're just going to take orders. So if I'm lucky, I'll put 50 cents in my pocket. And that's if I do everything right. If I sell to you direct to consumer, I can easily make 10 bucks. So that means it's 20 times as profitable to be uh, to be a small guy with a personal following. And, uh, and that's why these 10,000 wineries together only make about 5% of the wine, but they're about 85% of the gross profit in the industry. And the small, the big guys are going down because of cannabis and other craft beverages, Constellation and, and Gallo and all those guys are having a real hard time. Whereas, Everybody wants to retire from their stockbroker job or their, you know, getting out of being a litigator or a doctor, or, you know, some very lucrative profession that they hate and get into, we used to call it a chicken ranch, you know, <laughs> but now it's a, now it's a, you know, it's a mom and pop winery at, you know, a little tiny winery and they get to live the dream. So, and other people get to get with them, like like my people get with me, and I I put out a lot of videos of making wine and all that, and they kind of vicariously get to live the dream too, and especially expressed through the wines themselves. So let's talk about the dream, because wine making, wine growing, number one, but also wine making, it's hard work. It really is not nearly as romantic as people picture it. Well, hard work can be romantic. Okay. Okay. I'll buy that. Um, never be a winemaker or a jazz musician unless you have to. That you can't help it. There's something, some force within you that's just compelling you to go that way. So, so here's what I'm telling you about winemakers. And this is going to, when we get into this manipulation conversation, I really want people to get it that every single person in the wine industry 
could be the big wineries, little wineries. I know these people. There's not a single person in the wine industry that couldn't have made a lot more money somewhere else. And they got hooked into the idea of being the conduit between the land and a personal profound experience. This is the same reason people open restaurants. There's no money in that either. But they want to be a chef and they want to connect the vegetable to the human soul. Yeah. When I'm trying to explain what I mean by profundity, I, I say just get some really good kung pao chicken. Uh, uh, you know, I got a local restaurant where the the guy in the back doesn't, he doesn't even speak English, but he threw his hoisin eggplant. He shows me little spots in my soul that I didn't know I had. Man. And that's the very sexy thing to do. So uh, now here's my, my problem. Uh, Wolfgang Puck is a top chef and he's a showman and he'll get on TV and he'll say in his funny accent that I won't attempt to emulate. Oh, I bet you'd be good at it. Yeah, well, let's give the guy a break. But, uh, but he'll just say, I've got this I've got this gooey brie, but I want to uh, I want to put it in a puff system, and in order to do that, I have to grate it, and so I'm going to freeze it with liquid nitrogen so I can grate it. You want to watch? Yeah, <laughs> you're right on TV. I got this nitrogen thing, and then he'll take the brie and he'll put it on the table and it'll crack into a thousand pieces. And it's, it's great showmanship and people really love it that he's sharing his secrets. And they don't, it doesn't bother them that it's highly technological. Uh, and that's because they trust him. Now the problem with wine is because of its sacredness, and it's actually kind of funny that uh, we got up to about 1980 and people were visiting wineries and they would see all the stainless steel and the pumps and the, uh, you know, the refrigeration systems and all that. And they were totally comfortable with this because they have all that stuff in their kitchen. Everybody has stainless steel and the refrigerator and some electric lights and, you know, and, uh, and then we started getting into higher tech stuff like reverse osmosis and microoxygenation, and the winemakers, they weren't, they, they stopped explaining. And they got away with it for about 20 years, and then the natural wine people could just sniff. They're going, you're lying to me, you know? You're doing stuff that you don't want to talk about. And, and so they started firing live ammunition over the heads of winemakers. And what do the winemakers do? They got down low. They said, no, I do the minimum. My neighbor across the street, he's the one you want. <laughs> Take him out and shoot him. But I do the minimum, whatever the hell that means. And of course we do the minimum because you do more than the minimum, it's expensive, right? So you only do what you have to. But I know winemakers and winemakers sweat 24-7 trying to make great wines for your pleasure. And they don't do it for the money. And they need to be trusted and respected. 
And if you do that, and you, you just create an open listening, then you can end the bad marriage. That's what a good marriage counselor does is he makes, he makes people tell the truth about their you know, weird sexual urges that they don't want to tell their partner about and stuff like that. And you just, let's just get it all out there and have ourselves a love fest about who we actually are. And that's what I'm promoting. I, I love these people. I mean, I got two priorities. One of them is I want to sell a little more wine because my wife joined the company and I need to go from 1,000 cases to 2,000 cases so that she can do all of the stuff I hate and I can just make wine and, and consult and like that. That's one of my priorities. And the other one, which is really more important, is to, is to cut an even break for these little tiny winemakers that have, uh, they're all in. And they, they have a lot of trouble. It's, it's, like you say, very hard work. And, uh, you know, let's just take the smoke tank thing that's happening now. They need some advice from somebody that knows what they're talking about. They can't figure all that stuff out on their own. They're too busy just trying to make their email work. Um, so I guess I just really want to suggest to your, to your listeners that they, they find their local folks and go out and meet them. You will not find their wines on the, on the net, but you can, you know, they will welcome you with open arms as long as you wear a mask and, <laughs> and uh, get to know them, get to know their dog and, uh, and, and, and learn their vision of why they're doing what they're doing. Often with grapes you never heard of and uh, share the dream kind of goes to caring about what goes in your body in this case it's also what goes in your mind the quality of the relationship that's direct yeah. is just elevates the entire experience if you're going to do it anyway right if you're going to actually spend money make an effort i mean i'm not knocking going to a famous online store and clicking the button fine but there's a something so special and so highly relational, which I know I look for. I mean, you get just as much out of the conversation as you do about from the consumption and likely even more. The and wine tastes so much better when you know yeah. the story. Yeah. And Agreed. you can play show and tell with your, with, your, with your friends, you know, bring them over and you go, well, there's this nutty Clark Smith guy and he, and he makes this grape I never heard of, but I think it's kind of fun. And, you know, it's just a little, little show and tell, which you can't do with Kendall Jackson Cameron. And the thing is, you've had, you've had a very, and continuously having a very lustrous career, but you were really um, so much at the top of your game. You could have gone and worked for a large corporation and made conversely a lot of money and just really you could have done whatever you wanted. You chose that path deliberately, right? I guess uh, actually I don't I, I don't think uh, I don't think Galore Constellation I don't think I'd last two weeks in that environment. Yes, I'm, I'm having a hard time seeing it. Yeah. <laughs> I really I don't know how to I, I don't know how to behave myself. <laughs> no, but it's very telling. I mean, here you are really championing the industry that's uh, I think everyone that knows even a little bit about it realizes it's not a money making proposition at any level like you so eloquently described it's really a work of the heart and soul and it's an obsession uh, it's a lot of things 
is artistry, of course, again, beautiful words that you've shared with us, with us early on. But I think maybe the most compelling part of it is that life cycle of the vine mimics human life cycle so much and people that touch it along the mm. way. They're so, yeah. they're so beautiful that it just makes you feel like a better human. So it's really we, for we, you. We say there are no atheists in vineyards. <laughs> yeah, I, I believe that. I mean, especially when I look at old vines and that's a whole other separate uh, conversation. But when I just look at this grotesque kind of, you know, um, little ecosystems, little life forms. Uh, yeah. yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I really recommend the idea of raising a family in a small vineyard. Wow. And of course, you're going to go totally organic because you don't want to poison your kids. Yeah. And, and they're going to go out there, should be less than five acres. And your kids will learn all the vines by their first names. And watch this natural miracle that happens every year. You know, those plants, they just grow right up out of the dirty old ground. Don't you think that's weird? They're survivors. Vines yeah. are the most, the most resilient, if not the most resilient plants on earth, right? Well, and they're also great at uh, uh, an early emergent situation. Uh, the breaks, yeah. The grapes, the, the roots can break up limestone and granite and uh uh and but of course it's not a monoculture you know you got all all the bugs and and all you know you know who my favorite critter in a vineyard is is an earthworm really yeah because they work really cheap and they aerate <laughs> the soil and they leave behind a little compost and and when you have earthworms, then you get hypogeous fungi, and then you get this minerality that I like to talk about. Ooh, that's so interesting. And, uh, and that's, we don't know what minerality is, but we do get it off of certain soils like limestone and decomposed granite and uh, slate in the Mosul, and particularly uh, Portuguese ports on the schist. But we also can get it on any soil if we knock it off with the pesticides and the herbicides and allow the earthworms to do their thing. Now, the problem there, uh, I have a, now I, I taught for many years at Napa Valley College, and we have a vineyard there south of Napa Town. And, uh, and I made six vintages in the early 2000s of Napa Valley Chardonnay in a Chablis style. Uh, 12.9 alcohol or so, and lots of minerality, no malolactic, no uh, toasted oak. And, uh, and those wines are just transformational, but the current vintage is 2005. And the 06 isn't ready yet. Wow. So, I mean, if you like minerality, you have to be prepared to wait. What is minerality? Can you define it? Well, yeah, sure. I'm not talking about the smell of wet stone, uh, which I call petrichor. Okay. Petrichor is the essential, it's like 50 essential oils that you smell when there's rain in the desert. Uh, okay. So I'm not talking about the smell of wet stone. I'm talking about a, something that, most people think it's acidity. Yeah. Like when people talk about German wines living a long time because they have such good acidity, that's horseshit. 
they they have minerality and it's it's like acidity it's a kind of a buzz but it's in the finish when you swallow the wine there's all this energy and i think you saw that in a lot of my wines i did so for an average consumer how do they differentiate between acidity and minerality you gave them one tip it's which the it's the, the position of the buzz it's in your throat now it's about the same place that vinegar is acidic. Okay. Uh, but vinegar has this, you know, vinegary, slightly sweet character to it, and this doesn't have that. Uh, but, you know, the rest of the acids, tartaric acid, malic acid, citric acid, they all are further forward on that tongue. Is the sensation and the experiential part of it the same as with acidity? Or is there a meaningful difference just in terms of taste? Well, one of the things that happens is, you know, what acidity does is it makes you salivate. Right. Now, that's not good with most red wines because the astringency that you get, the sort of sandpaper feel in the mouth, is it's not tannin, it's the combination of tannin and salivary protein. And so if you have a red wine like a Cabernet and it has high acidity, then you're gonna have more salivary protein and the tannin will be coarse. And so what I was taught at, at Bordeaux was that you really wanna have a pretty high pH, pretty low titratable acidity uh, so that the wine can be more refined and smooth. Uh, you tasted the Saint Laurent. Uh, that's not really true of Saint Laurent because for some reason it has high acidity and it's a, it's a, you know, we're picking it at 20 bricks or 21 bricks, 11.8 alcohol uh, and lots of acid, but it works more like a white wine and, and, and like a Sancerre, really good with seafood uh, because the tannins are very, very soft. There's something in there that coats the tannin. I'd say, I say the Saint Laurent tannins have pajamas on it. And, uh, and so you can use that. It's, it's the exception that proves the rule. Norton's like that too. Uh, but but uh, I like for my wines, like my Cabernet Franc, for example, it, it has to have pretty low acidity, but I want it to have a lively palate. And so I, uh, you know, we're growing it on a volcanic soil that imparts this minerality. So it has a very lively palate, but minerality doesn't provoke acidity. I mean, salivation. Got it. Very interesting. So you mentioned a few moments ago that we're, of course, um, experiencing um, ongoing fire problem and that clearly has become a pattern in California, 2017, yeah. 2019. Yeah. I, and unfortunately, and it pains me greatly to say that, but I think it's going to be an ongoing concern moving forward. Without question. Um, that kind of informs how we're going to deal with it in the winemaking sense. And right now people are scrambling, trying to figure out the smoke taint in the grapes. I know that ETS lab has a month long wait list because they're just rushing to get the analysis done. By the time yeah. the analysis is done, the harvest is already in the, way in the thick of it. So I can't even make sense of what that dynamic is. Can you? 
Well, not really, but, <laughs> but I can say some things. Uh, one of them, and this will terrify you even further, uh, we're not in the wildfire season yet. I, you oh, know, glass now. New Jersey and when I was in Boston, you get a, I mean, if you don't get a thunderstorm every couple of weeks, it's a drought. So I'm really used to lightning and thunder. But in California, I would say I've seen a thunderstorm about once a decade, except for the last two weeks. I mean, there hasn't been anything in the last week, but the week before that, four thunderstorms. Total of over 10,000 lightning strikes. And we have never seen that before. They say it's got to do with the ocean warming up and uh, just creating these heat lightning, the combination of heat, and, uh, you know, in the atmosphere. I don't know. But the point is, all of that's, all that fire you've seen so far that may very well have wiped out Napa and Sonoma, um, that's, that's a new element just this year. We have not hit wildfire season yet. The conclusion of this interview can be found in the next podcast, already available for your download. Thanks again for tuning in to the official podcast of Pal Exposure, featuring Alona Thompson.